Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief of Intrafish, and I'm joined today by John Evans in Brazil, a correspondent, and John Fiorillo, Executive Editor. We've been on a break. We've enjoyed some summertime, as I'm sure some of you have as well. Um, but then others have not. For others, this is the busiest time of year, and uh, one of those uh, one of those sectors is the wild salmon sector in Alaska. Of course, the one that matters the most, or at least the one that maybe has the most consequence globally, is the sockeye salmon fishery, and in particular, the sockeye salmon fishery in Bristol Bay. As of, let's see, Monday, Tuesday, uh, the Bristol Bay sockeye salmon uh, run, the total amount that returned back to uh, Bristol Bay, smashed a record, hit a record high. Uh, John Fiorillo, you've been tracking this. What, a, what, what kind of crazy thing is going on here, and, and what does a run like this mean uh, on the economic side of things, and, and what can it tell us about the future? Yeah, um, especially coming off last year where the run was really compressed into a couple days um, and the prices to fishermen were <laughs> extremely low. This year is just, uh, you know, everybody's smiling from, from what I can gather. So the new record um, as of Monday or Tuesday, it, and it will go up, but so far 63.2 million sockeye have returned to the watersheds. Um, in Bristol Bay, the catch is uh, has exceeded the preseason forecast. So the catch right now, last numbers we saw were was 38.6 million fish. So um, you know, there from a run perspective, from a resource perspective, this is this is astounding and really wonderful for Bristol Bay and Alaska in general, and it can be. It can be, um, you know, compared to the, the opposite that's going on in BC, where um, their sockeye runs have not shown up, and they've had to close more than 60 fisheries um, because of it. So it's just an interesting uh, comparison from that sense. The other interesting part of this season, and I think it's one we'll really delve into as as the year goes on, is that Peter Pan, the kind of the new force, uh, or wants to be the new force in in Alaska and Bristol Bay, um, came out with a base price before the season really even started, before the the main catches started coming in, and that's unusual, um, very unusual um, for that fishery, and it's been a bone of contention for a long, long time between fishermen and the process, processors they sell to. So Peter Pan came out, uh, you know, they're trying to build their fleet back up. The, uh, they've had trouble over the last several years. A lot of their fishermen have departed for Trident and some of the other guys in the bay, and they're trying to recapture them. So this was their uh, one of their ways of doing that. And um, lo and behold, um, <laughs> all the other processors, um, eventually not as early as peter pan but eventually came out with a base price which now is about a dollar 25. now base price doesn't include all the incentives they get for icing and rsw and all these other things but it is a way to start to understand 
you know, what the value of this fishery is from year to year. And last year, just by comparison, fishermen were getting 70 cents a pound. So if you're a fisherman in the bay this year, I'm pretty sure you're pretty happy. Right. This brings us, you know, back in line with where things were um, kind of in 2019 and 2018, doesn't it, Uh, in terms of these price levels? A little bit lower, but I mean, you know, uh, near that. Yeah, this is, this is, you know, I mean, last year was such an outlier, but, you know, it did, it did raise the hackles of fishermen who, you know, they fish on quote unquote open tickets. That means they just deliver fish, but they don't know what they're going to get paid for it. And uh, it's an odd system. It's a system that Alaska has used forever or a long, long time. And, uh, this may be a turning point in that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm really intrigued to see what happens going forward and whether Peter Pan just did this to kind of, you know, uh, uh, make themselves seen this first year now that they have new ownership or whether uh, this may be, uh, a, you know, the new the new way things get done. Now, tell us just a little bit about the on the market side of things. Um, fresh sockeye seems to be prevalent in a, a lot more places maybe than it, it has been in years past. And uh, I'm assuming part of it is volume, but um, part of it has been a deliberate strategy. Peter Pan's a good example of that. So uh, are, are we seeing more on the market? Uh, and do you think this is – are you hearing from folks that this is a trend that we're going to see more of? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple factors here influencing that. First of all, fresh seafood sales in the U.S. are off the charts. They've been strong since COVID, and they continue to be strong, as opposed to shelf-stable slash canned and uh, frozen, which got a great burst during COVID, but now have fallen back, um, you know, to... They're still higher than 2019 levels in some respects, but they're falling back to more a more normal pattern while f- fresh seafood sales continue to grow. Um, yeah, I think you're seeing it in more markets for one particular reason, and that is uh, the way the fish came in this year. The fish came in, in in what I would say is an orderly fashion. They came in um you know in in large numbers but on a consistent and orderly uh fashion so that processors weren't jammed up and they could process you know as they needed to and get the product out to stores so i think the fact that the fish came in at a more traditional uh pace is is a big deal um also you know we got to remember copper river um it really didn't show up again this year. The sockeye didn't. So with the bay coming in, you know, pretty quickly behind that and a good flow of fish, I think retailers were more than happy to bring bring that fish in. And it seems, um, you know, they've got plenty to, to work with and the prices are pretty good. I can't remember what I saw for a QFC the other day. I want to say like ten ninety nine or maybe a, a dollar more. I can't remember, but... You know, that's a sweet spot for for wild salmon. 
Right, and then, you know, on the same note too, fresh salmon's doing quite well, or fresh farm salmon rather, is doing quite well. So, um, you know, uh, wild salmon can benefit from that as well when it sits alongside uh, farm salmon in a, in a fresh case. Um, let's, uh, let's move over to the other side of the Pacific. And uh, John, you have been um, kind of our, our lead on shipping and logistics and all the uh all the chaos that has been going on there um now tell us china really although you know again i think areas countries and uh and and states uh and regions that have had some lift in COVID restrictions it's really easy to talk about uh or feel rather that that things are um getting back to normal. But that's certainly not the case in the shipping sector uh, and logistics uh, uh, realm, um, and in particular in China. Now, the latest is there's been reports out of India that right now um, it is so backlogged in some of the Chinese ports that um, there, there was an estimate by one, um, one publication saying a 1,000 uh, over a thousand containers were backed up in Chinese ports, and um, the Seafood Exporters Association in India actually is recommending to uh, farmers uh, across India to to not export to China. So, give us a sense of of uh, what's happening there and uh, and and what we might expect. Yeah, if the uh, New Indian Express report is to believe as many as 1,200, 1,200 containers of Indian shrimp exports may be now stranded in Chinese ports with a value of 100, more than $160 million. Um, it's difficult to say, uh, speaking to uh, from speaking to a couple of sources I spoke to overnight and uh, just this afternoon uh, with uh, who, who, who operate with Indian shrimp and and China, um, the, the exact numbers. So, so uh, we you know we have indications that that number number is, uh, as somebody put it, flimsy. So it may not be as high. Others the say we just can't tell how high it is. But um, uh, yeah, it, it could be more than 160 million dollars uh, worth of shrimp and. Um, you know, the report from the New Indian Express said that, uh, you know, entry of product belonging to around 50 Indian seafood exporters has been refused, and roughly half of those from India's main shrimp-producing region, Andhra Pradesh. But uh, it's difficult to know which of, uh, how many of the, 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 that 50 is correct. Uh, and some some have been apparently about... Um, They've been uh, received a ban for a week or a suspension, I should say, for a week. Others for longer periods, which we are not sure of exactly of the, of the of the length of those periods at this precise moment. And as you mentioned, the um, the Indian trade body um, advising not to uh, ship to China at the moment, and that sort of coincides with what I heard this afternoon in terms of buyers complaining about not being paid. Uh, by by Chinese, um, you know, by by Chinese customers. So you know they're they're unhappy. Um, I suppose on the upside, what I was told this afternoon that as long as the shrimp remains plugged into its uh, frozen container uh, containers, that they it could last between uh, one 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 and a half years, possibly two years uh, in terms of shelf life. 
Um, so it's not going to go out of date uh, straight away. But then again, can it get through the Chinese customs with the, you know, the crackdown on um, on uh, traces of COVID on out of packaging, uh, which we have seen uh, last year with the Ecuadorian industry? They had their own problems. Right. And, and you just wrote a story on this, John, uh, on on Ecuador sort of. Uh, shift, which I think is pretty remarkable. Um, just looking at the latest numbers, they've really taken. And I remember the, you know, the the um, uh, the, the trade association there telling us they were looking at all these different markets in part because they felt they had put um, a few too many eggs in one basket with China, which has been a fantastic market for them. But they very clearly worked hard to pivot away from China uh, and diversify into other markets, right? Uh, there is that, yeah. I mean, there's that to it, and also the fact that uh, demand for foreign seafood uh, products in China hasn't come back to where it was um, yet. Uh, 116 million pounds worth of shrimp was shipped to China in May 2020, and it's never really got above uh, 65 to 80 million somewhere in there. Since then, it did dip down uh, for one month to 29 million. Uh, pounds, but um, yes, it's, um, it's it's a combination of factors, really. Yeah, you know, and it, it's interesting because it's it's so hard to get good information out of China and get a good understanding of why these products are being refused, how that process works. Uh, it's it's very very difficult to understand, and at times. It, it feels relatively arbitrary, um, but it has hit uh, a lot of major species. It's hit uh, the Russian Pollock sector, which has relied a lot on getting its products to China for reprocessing and products around the world. And so, um, you know, we'll, we'll be looking at this in some future stories, but it, it really I think some real questions have been raised now about China's role in the global seafood processing industry uh and the importance that it uh had taken on um and kind of um maybe a a little bit of um some learning that's happened since COVID in particular uh and since the the trade wars that um that the the prior um presidential administration in the united states uh started so um it'll be interesting to watch so let's see what happens we're we're keeping on track of it and uh we've got a story coming out here uh not too long probably in a uh in an hour or so from dominic welling in london uh with some from more information on that um all right uh, another big story that is uh that is in the works that's kind of uh rumbling was uh, a Huon salmon, uh, Australian salmon producer, um, is reportedly being approached or is reportedly in talks uh, or has had an approach from JBS. John Evans is going to correct me in my uh, pronunciation of that, but it's a $50 billion meat conglomerate. John, who is JBS? We've all maybe heard that acronym. Uh, we all maybe kind of know that it's in meat, but just just give us the the ten penny tour of of the company. Yeah, known by its uh, Portuguese abbreviation locally here as JBS. Uh, JBS is a uh, Brazilian company. It's the largest meat processing company by sales in in the world, um, processing beef, 
chicken and uh, pork. It was founded in uh, 1953 um, in the state of Goyath and has around something around 150 industrial plants across the world. As you mentioned, uh, revenues of $53 billion in, um, in 2020, so kind of the Google of the meat industry, you might say. Um, what else can I tell you about the, the company? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been, I, I'm not trying to uh, talk down the company, um, but it has been, you know, in recent years, 2017, involved in uh, a number of, uh, of scandals. Um, in uh, 2017, authorities announced they were investigating whether JPS had received illegal financing from the state-owned bank in Brazil, BNDS. Um, and there was also another, more accusations that the company or the company chairman uh, tried to bribe a jailed former legislator to buy the lawmakers silence. And also in 2017, JNF uh, uh, Investimentos, I should say, the parent company had agreed to pay uh, $3.2 billion in fines for leniency from the Brazilian government uh, over 25 years, uh, mostly because of bribes to Brazilian politicians. So um, it's certainly got a uh, colourful history, you might say. <laughs> yeah, and it's got uh, also a lot of money uh, to spend. Now, um, when these stories began to break about uh, JBS being um, potentially interested in, uh, in, in purchasing Huon, uh, the investors really liked it, so just uh, it has sent the shares uh, really rocketing in in Huon. Um, and over the past month alone, um, just to give you a sense, Movie, the world's largest salmon farmer, its shares are down 4.4 percent, while Huon's are up 17 percent. So um, clearly, investors like this move. Um, you know, I, John Fiorillo, um, we, we talk a lot about these larger trade companies, um, getting interested in, uh, the salmon sector and, and starting to discover it. I mean, this is just one more, one more sign that this is, um, kind of inevitable. I would, I would say we've had, uh, legend holdings invest in the, uh, in the, uh, Chilean salmon farmer, Australis seafood. Um, of course, Cargill uh, into uh, into fish feed, but also indicating very strongly it'll get into the the fish, the biomass side of things as well. So, is it kind of inevitable that we're going to see the big meat and ag giants uh, snapping up salmon farmers in particular? Yeah, uh, I think so, and I mean they the you know their ability to buy seafood companies is extraordinary because generally they have so much more money and are so much larger and you know it's happening at a time when at least in the u.s but everywhere else too the demand for seafood is is increasing uh people are eating more seafood um than ever before so you know if you're a protein seller whether it's you know beef or chicken or whatever it just makes sense to have you know seafood in in your portfolio so it'll be interesting to watch um where it goes it's 
you know, we're in the early stages of it perhaps. And, and, you know, one other note to make is a lot of these meat companies are also um, playing around with uh, plant-based and cell-based seafood. So um, there's a convergence underway. Uh, We're probably at the beginning of it, I would say, but um, I think it's, it's coming. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. I guess we'll know in the in the coming weeks if uh, if anything comes to fruition. But as I said, in the meantime, uh, Huan's investors really like this idea, uh, so they're excited about it. Um, all right. Well, we're going to finish off with uh, one of our more interesting stories of the of the week, or at least one that uh, makes us uh, chuckle a little bit because it seems kind of like a um, an interesting quest that uh, the Scottish Salmon Watch uh, NGO uh, has um, to expose the uh, the um, errors, uh, crimes. I'm not sure what uh, terminology they would use of the uh, farm salmon sector. Now, it's pretty interesting because there's a couple of lessons to take away from this. Well, for one. Um, the campaigner, uh, his name's Don Staniford, and it, most people in the salmon farming industry know who he is, and he's just been kind of a thorn in, in their side for years and years and years. Um, and has it's not, uh, he's had a, a spotty record of uh, playing around with the truth as well, um, and, and actually got, uh, um, got uh, um, ordered to pay Cermak. Um, a fine um, when he was in Canada for libel when he said that farm salmon caused cancer, eating farm salmon caused cancer, which it doesn't um, as far as anything that we've read uh, or reported on all these years. Anyway, um, so Mr. Sanford went to uh, some movie uh, salmon farms in Scotland uh, with a a GoPro a handheld underwater camera took some shots of some fish swimming around they had lice there were wounds um nothing too overly uncommon in in salmon farms there are always uh fish health issues but it made for some striking footage um now staniford uh posted this online uh tweeted at uh several retailers that uh purchased from movie one of those retailers, uh, the UK retailer Co-op, tweeted back and said, we will suspend purchasing from this supplier while we investigate. Um, now, very quickly, things were uh, put in motion. Um, certainly, Movie uh, came out with its rebuttal uh, to this and, uh, and criticizing uh, the tactics and uh, criticizing sort of what they um, said was uh, selective footage. Um, and then, uh, very, very shortly after, uh, co-op, uh, reached out in a kind of a panic and said there had been a, a human error with a Twitter account and, uh, and that they hadn't in fact suspended, uh, purchases from movie. And then they gave themselves a little breathing room there by saying we purchased very, very little from movie. So, um, co-op trying to have it both ways there a little bit, um, John Fiorillo, you seem like you uh, might have something to say on this. Certainly, we've already hashed it over the uh, hashed it out over the past week. Um, yeah, what should what should salmon farming companies make of this? Uh, what what lessons should be taken away from all of this by the industry? And um, what do we make of all this? 
Yeah, well, I mean, this is not new territory for salmon farming companies, obviously. Um, they're, they seem to be lightning rods for this type of stuff, whether they be in Canada or elsewhere. But I think my takeaway from this is, you know, um, Mr. Staniford is, as you say, well known and he's been described. <laughs> I think Maui described him as a, a zealot. Um, and there, there's some truth to that in the sense that he has dedicated his life to this. So, um, but I think the bigger context is that animal welfare, as it pertains to food animals, whether they're cows or pigs or fish or whatever, is is growing as a focal point um, in in the way companies have to behave and and treat the animals that they raise that ultimately they slaughter and you know turn into hamburgers or whatever and it's it's not new necessarily but it certainly has a lot more energy behind it than it ever has so um you can't separate the two anymore i think animal welfare and companies abilities to demonstrate you know they they go beyond to provide as much you know animal welfare as they can um it, it's certainly gonna be a, a big factor in the future well and i found it interesting that, that co-op's knee-jerk reaction i think speaks just to that john that there is so much uh, so much concern on the part of retailers in particular and especially uk retailers who tend to be a lot more um sensitive to these issues or at least they will tend to listen and react quicker than retailers in other in other countries um but but i i think that reaction um whether or not it was human error uh i mean obviously there was some error some broken line of communication but um we we may not know as much as we'd like to find out exactly what sort of what wires got crossed there um but i do think that that quick reaction to say we're suspending that supplier is indicative of what you're saying that um animal welfare has become a hot topic i don't you know it's really been primarily there's been some campaigns against lobster there's been uh you know over over decades now um but there has been this creep hasn't there of of more uh, NGOs kind of bringing it up with seafood a little more often. I think there's a recognition on the part of some of the larger companies and uh, both in wild fish and farm fish, as well as association that, okay, animal welfare, like you said, John, is going to become a bigger issue um, as, as time goes on. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that cook had, uh, you know, the undercover camera went into Cook's uh, facility and filmed a guy stomping on a salmon, as if I recall correctly. But, I mean, the the problem is, for example, the, the story this week that involved um, a Maui movie, um, the picture that Mr. Staniford posted looks not yeah, I mean it doesn't look good. It looks like this fish is being eaten alive by these by these lice. But you know, I don't think the general public knows enough to discern whether this is like a really 
bad example of of this or if this is routine i certainly don't i don't know i mean the fish you can see a sore you can see countless lice on it um but you know just objectively looking at this i don't know if this is uncommon or uh, you know what what the case may be so um that's where this gets a little dangerous because you can start showing pictures to a public that is ill-informed and you can, you know, you can blossom this pretty quickly. So, um, yeah, I do think, I agree. I do think this animal welfare um, uh, question is, is going to take on more and more importance um, as we go forward. Well, folks, uh, we will leave it there. We're happy to be back, uh, though I know that many uh, out there in the industry are still probably taking a break, but maybe you're still tuning into Intrafish uh, to our podcast anyway. We would certainly hope so, um, because you need to keep up on the news. Remember, Intrafish.com, where they're 24-7 uh, rolling out original, exclusive, and breaking news on the seafood sector. And that doesn't stop. There's never, ever a dull, a dull day for any of us, that's for sure. Um, a quick uh, note on September 9th, uh, we will have our annual Salmon Summit. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, we already have uh, some guests confirmed um, for one of our panels, which is going to be uh, some former CEOs of salmon farming companies. My hope is that that will allow them to take the muzzle off and speak very frankly about their concerns, hopes, fears, frustrations. Uh, we'll have Jan Hindar, he's the former CEO of Surmac, Atla Ida, former CEO of Panfish, which became Marine Harvest, which later became Movie, uh, as well as Einar Watna, who is the former CEO of feed company Evos. So really looking forward to that panel. More guests being confirmed uh, by our great events team as we speak. So mark your calendars. September 9th, you can also go on intrafishevents.com and register. All right. Thanks, everyone. And we'll talk to you next week.